Director Corey Finley finds the dark humor within this scandal, which he depicts with a wit, style, and a terrific cast. That's one of our friends of the podcast, Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com. She's talking about Bad Education, which just premiered this weekend on HBO, a terrific film. I encourage you all to check it out right now. There's a dearth of new material out there. So new movie, hot off the presses on HBO. Hugh Jackman, Ray Romano, Allison Janney, and others. A review coming up. Plus, as we continue to sift through movies that I just haven't seen before, well, I finally got around to watching Shallow Hal. Next year was going to be the 20th anniversary of the Fairley Brothers movie, so I said, you know what, I might as well go see it. Uh, and in the heat of the night, I'd never seen before, Sidney Poitier, of course, Rod Steiger, and Dial M for Murr. Continuing all the feedback, a lot of good feedback over North by Northwest last week, so there's another Hitchcock movie for you, starring Ray Milan. Uh, we've also got Mount Rushmore. In honor of last, we talked about Paper Moon, which is a great title. How about the Mount Rushmore movie titles? We're going to try that this week, as well as Total Recall from 2010. That's where the Hurt Locker ended up doing very, very well. As always, hope everybody's staying safe, and thank you so much for the support of us. I can't thank you enough. Please go to Apple Podcasts and uh, subscribe and rate and review A Griff 37 This podcast is worth a listen if you're into a nuanced and rational take on cinema and even a little television. The Ray Seahorn interview was excellent. Keep up the good work, Adnan and John. It's Joe, but thank you, A Griff 37 uh, Zach May from SC. I think that's my old buddy Zach from Sports Center, North by Northwest. I can't believe this is your first time watching North by Northwest. I know. I agree with your opinion. It's probably Hitchcock's most accessible film and is something for all audiences to enjoy. It feels like it may have been one of the first true summer blockbusters or at least helped start the trend of big, bold, ambitious movies needing to be seen on the big screen. Thank you, Zach. Thank you for the four Maple Leafs and the five-star review. And last, from Warrior Monk, Adnan is like a movie snob who isn't a snob at all. His reviews are always thought out and well said. The fact that he hates Joker and Joaquin Phoenix's performance as much as I do, while everyone else seems to praise both alone gets him five stars. There's a great job of mixing blockbuster movies with indie flicks. I would have never seen Jojo Rabbit or Parasite before the hype if it wasn't for this podcast. I've also gone back and watched great movies of the past like Groundhog's Day and The Usual Suspects. Keep up the great work. All right. Thank you so much, Warrior Mark. Thank you much to all of you. I appreciate those reviews and keep them coming because that's how we stay afloat. I know a lot of parents out there like me are worried about distance learning right now. It certainly has been a challenge in terms of helping our kids get through their homework. Well, in honor of that... Bad Education is the first movie that we are reviewing this week. And it's not an anthology of movies, as much as I wish it were. Bad Lieutenant Harvey Keitel, Bad Teacher Cameron Diaz. This is Bad Education, its own entity, and it is excellent. This is the story. It's inspired by true events. Frank Tassone, that's Hugh Jackman, and Pam Glucken, Allison Janney, reign over a popular Long Island school district on the verge of the nation's top spot, spurring record college admissions and soaring property values. But when an embezzlement scheme surfaces that threatens to destroy all they've built, Frank is forced to maintain order and secrecy by whatever means necessary. It's written by Mike Bukowski, who's actually a student at the school where this scandal happened, and it's directed by the aforementioned Corey Finley. And it's an excellent film about good people doing bad things. Jackman's heart is in the right place. He's a superintendent of these schools. And the early parts of the film show him being very diligent in trying to fundraise as much as possible and having to make sure his school has a great reputation. He's going through each of the parents and memorizing their names, their interests. Oh, you like golf, you like bowling, how's this going, etc. And and as my friend Scott Rogowski pointed out, it really nails that aspect of Long Island and just how territorial people can be. Like they're talking about, you know, school athletics between the different schools and, you know, Syosset versus, uh, you know, whatever, uh, uh, Suffolk County and all that kind of stuff. So... Definitely, if you're from the area, you can appreciate the references that they make towards that time in those schools. But 
Jackman's heart is in the right place. He's trying to raise money for the school. He's trying to help people out. He's trying to help the kids. You see him being genuine and sincere. But a little greed goes a long way. So he likes having his $1,000 suits. He likes getting facelifts. And he's got a secret past as well. Um, a woman hits on him, the great Catherine Narducci, who I met at Sopranos Con. We love her, Charmaine Bucco. Uh, she hits on him at one point because he's helping her. So he's like, oh, I can't, I can't. It's too soon. Even though his wife has been dead for like 30 years, he still wears her wedding ring. But then when he pops up and sees one of his old students who's now a bartender, young, good-looking guy, get to a couple of drinks, you go, oh, okay, now I see where this is. So he's got a buried secret, the fact that he's gay. And in addition to having this romance with this guy, he's also been living with a man for decades in a very expensive New York apartment. And who's paying for that? Well, as the movie makes clear, this is where the, the books are being cooked. Allison Janney is always as excellent. It's hard when it comes to accents. People always overdo them, but she nailed the Long Island accents. It's not Long Island all the time. It's all, which is definitely true, A-L-L, but it's long. It's not long. And I thought, you know, just her nuance with it. Again, my buddy Rags and I were talking about this on his show. And he said that he thinks Allison Jennings is like Meryl Streep. Everything she touches turns to gold. I mean, she is an incredible actress. I, Tanya, won an Academy Award, stole the movie, as great as Margot Robbie was. And here playing a character who actually is more greedy and more avaricious than Hugh Jackman's character. And I would think less altruistic. Whereas Jackman's character really does seem to have his heart in the right place. He just gets carried away with misappropriating funds. I mean, Janie is much more callous. There's a scene where her uh, niece is asking to buy a PlayStation. And she's like, yeah, go ahead, put it on the card. It's like, well, okay, just putting everything on the company card here. And all of a sudden, millions of dollars, literally millions of dollars are being racked up for personal gain and nothing to do with the school. And this is all at the behest of taxpayer money. So it certainly is one of those movies showing how corruption comes apart. If you're wondering how did the story actually get unfolded, well, that's what's even more interesting. It's one thing when people are being crooks and getting away with stuff, but how about the fact that the character Rachel Bargava, played by the wonderful South Asian actress Geraldine Viswanathan, if that name sounds familiar, it's because she was the best part of Blockers. She was hilarious in the John Cena movie, one of the kids, and stole that movie from me. Here she plays Rachel Bargava, who is writing for the student newspaper. And she's the one that asks to see the books and starts to dig through some files and sees that these funds are being misappropriated. And that is actually based on the true story. As always with a really good docudrama, you say, okay, how much was true? How much wasn't? In reading about this film after I saw it on HBO this weekend, it appears that quite a bit of it is true. And that is certainly true. A student newspaper first uncovered the corruption and then the New York Times and Newsday and the Daily News and every other paper in the tri-state area ended up blowing it up. Jackman is always an excellent actor. I mean, I, as I've said before about him, he's a song and dance man, which is an old school term. It's very few guys that can still do that, but it's nice to see him breaking bad, so to speak. Oftentimes you see him uh, as a good guy or certainly a conflicted good guy if you look at Wolverine, but here he's an out-and-out -out villain, but he definitely plays him with shades of decency and human interest and shows that that selfishness is wrapped up in a coat of goodness. I recommend Bad Education. One more thought for you. Ray Romano continues a very interesting stretch here. First, he was the great Bill Buffalino in The Irishman, and here he shows up, bad mustache, brutal haircut, and he plays one of the school administrators who panics when he sees what's happening. You know, first Allison Janney's character gets popped, and then Jack, when the whole house comes down, he's playing Big Bob Spicer. And clearly, Ray Romano has figured this out. Rather than do another sitcom, made his millions off, everybody loves Raymond, Syndication, etc. There's another show, Men of a Certain Age, which I liked on TNT, Scott Bakula, the great Andre Brower. 
Uh, it only lasts a few seasons. Not many people saw it. Okay, fine, critics. Well, now what the hell? Rather than do stand-up specials, I'm just going to show up in these prestige projects. I'll work with Scorsese and De Niro and Pacino. I'll work with Janney and Jackman in an HBO movie. I love it. I love what Ray Romano is doing with his career. Ultimately, I think people are really going to enjoy it. And like I said, with so much of a focus right now on education, uh, clearly this is a film a lot of people can appreciate. A couple of reviews for Leah Greenblatt. Again, friend of the pod, Entertainment Weekly. A bright, sharp-edged satire with a gift of two great comedic actors, Hugh Jackman and Allison Janney. And Brian Lowry of CNN.com. It's Tassone's perspective that Finley largely keeps to, which, if you don't know the true story, lets bad education unspool, if not surprisingly, at least captivatingly. That is true. The beats are kind of known, but I mean, in this kind of story of corruption, I think you know where it's headed. Bad education. I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. Joe, I know you didn't have a chance to see it. Hopefully you can check it out on HBO. Oh, I definitely will. And I think the saving grace right now during quarantine and coronavirus is that at least HBO, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon are pushing out new content for us to review and watch. Uh, My question for you is how how does the film wrestle with the whole idea of Doing something good can be negated by doing something bad. Is there any conflict that Hugh Jackman shows throughout that movie? Yeah, good, great question, Joe. Late in the film, there's a particularly troubled kid. This is as literally the house has fallen down, and now the article's been published, and the cops are there, and they're ransacking the place, and he's still being helpful, or at least trying to, to one of the kids. But then, you know, the mom and the kid kind of push his buttons, and he gives a little monologue about how teachers are mistreated. And he goes, you know, we work so hard to learn your names, to learn your backgrounds, to sacrifice our lives for education, to get you a better life, to send you to these Ivy League schools. Uh, and then all of a sudden, hopefully you can cash in on that. And you don't care about us. Once you leave, you don't care about your teachers. You don't keep in touch. You don't worry about us. And so it's a really good speech and a good scene where you can tell he's definitely becoming unhinged. But it's an important point. I mean, listen, pay the teachers, right? We all know that. We always, educators were paid more. And I think after what this country is going through more than ever, we say, God, do not take the teachers for granted. Definitely. Yeah. And even though we need to take care of our teachers, is embezzlement the answer? And I think that's the question (laughs) we all need to ask. (laughs) Exactly. Well said. All right. This review is going to be primarily more of Joe because he's seen more of this movie than I ever have. But I finally got around to watching Shallow Hal. Just as I've been telling you, I, I tried to go through some old Jim Carrey movies I'd never seen before. Well, I love the Farrelly brothers. I, I think there's something about Mary should have been nominated for Best Picture that year. That's what a great comedy that is. 1998. I might be even a bigger fan of Kingpin which is, of course, wonderful. Me, myself, and Irene I watched again. And I remember at the time it got mixed reviews. I think it's very good. Uh, and, of course, Green Book, which uh, Peter Fairley did, not Bobby, uh, won Best Picture. I know it got pilloried by some, but I thought it was an excellent film. So I said, listen, i got to watch Shallow Hal. My aversion to it or reluctance to watching it was I'm not a huge Jack Black fan. I find him to be kind of an obnoxious guy. Every time I see him on screen, I go, yeah, I just don't think he's all that warm or charming or all that funny. So that's why I hadn't seen the movie. And to be perfectly blunt, I'm not crazy about Gwyneth Paltrow either. I, know I, don't really, I don't really find her screen presence as alluring as others. So that's why I had waited to see this movie. But thankfully, two actors I like a lot, Jason Alexander, plays the sidekick role, did not know that, just as I didn't realize Jennifer Aniston played this, the love interest and in Bruce Almighty, and Joe Vitarelli, who was so great and analyzed this. Uh, he's in the movie as well. He's playing the father of Gwyneth Paltrow's character. So the story is this, in case you've never seen it, 20th anniversary of Shallow Hal next year. The story revolves around Hal, Jack Black, who, taking his dying father's advice, dates only the embodiments of female physical perfection. But that all changes after Hal has an unexpected run-in with self-help guru Tony Robbins. By the way, how huge is Tony Robbins? Gigantic in the movie. Hands are huge. Head is big. I mean, just, just, a, just suffering from gigantism. 
in addition to having a ton of money. Intrigued by Hal's shallowness, Robbins hypnotizes him into seeing the beauty that exists even in the least physically appealing women. By the way, I don't mean to crush Tony Robbins. Very popular. My buddy Hussein loves him, but I'm just saying. Huge, huge man. Um, so that's the story. And the first half, I think, is particularly funny because, you know, Jack Black's looking at this woman played by Gwyneth Paltrow, who's just enormous. And to everybody else, she's obese. She's literally breaking chairs. I mean, she's crushing double milkshakes. And it's like, all right. But he's completely enraptured by her. And one of the funnier scenes is when Jason Alexander, who's also similarly shallow, when he first sees her, he's just like, are you kidding? Like, how could you be so entranced by this woman? But of course, if you're fat, you're skinny in his eyes. And if you're, by the way, really hot, it goes the other way as well, which is even funnier. So, you know, if someone's attractive, he thinks they're like a troll. Ultimately, the, the, the jokes wear out after a while, but that stretch, much like Bruce Almighty, once he gets the powers, that's the funniest part of the comedy. Once Shallow Hal is like first falling in love with her, that's the funniest part of the comedy. You know, the second half, it starts to slow down a little bit. Then it gets a little bit preachy. And okay, what does love have? And of course, Alexander finds Tony Robbins. He has to then reverse the curse. You know, the ending, obviously, no one's really going to buy. But you know, these movies are coming with that. But ultimately, I thought it was all right. I'm going to give it probably two and a half Maple Leafs. It was not peak Fairly Brothers for me. I would agree with the review from Neil Smith of BBC.com. Hilarious in parts, sickeningly sentimental in others. Shallow Hal has the Fairleys trying to expand their range with only mildly successful results. And one more here from Derek Adams of Time Out. The film is not as funny as their best, but fascinates in the discomforting way it foregrounds the brothers' normally buried, facile, moral dialectic. And if you know what that means, here's Joe with more on Shallow Hal. And then I was so curious to get your take on this movie just to see how it holds up. I really like the Fairley Brothers overall, and when they hit, they hit. Dumb and Dumber, Kingpin. So I'm glad to see that it's still funny at some parts, but it just, I don't know if I can still revisit it just just for that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, that's a perfectly well said, Joe. Like, I saw it once. I'm glad I've seen it now. It was amusing. Like, it, it did the job, right? Right in quarantine, I need a couple laughs. I had a few laughs. Alexander, by the way, disturbing ending with the fact he's got his own issue, the fact he has a tail. I mean, I'm, I'm still horrified by that entire scene. <laughs> like, that was just disgusting. I, I did not need to physically see that. I would have loved to have gotten that out of the movie. Uh, Todd McCarthy variety, by the way, with the relatively untested black coming on awfully strong, the lack of directorial finesse lets the Enterprise down, creating some clunky scenes and dead air where laughs might have been expected. Harsh review there from Todd McCarthy. So that is shallow hell. Uh, we'll get to a couple more films here, and then we get some entertainment news. And then we got a special guest, by the way. I didn't even mention him. Eric Roberts. That's right, Eric Roberts. Guy's a Hollywood legend, been in so many movies. He's in a new film called Inside the Rain, which I saw on Amazon. I encourage you all to check it out. So we'll get to Eric Roberts in just a second. A couple more movies. In the Heat of the Night, I know. Shame on me. I'd never seen it. African-American Philadelphia police detective Virgil Tibbs, Sidney Poitier, is arrested on suspicion of murder by Bill Gillespie, Rod Steiger, the racist police chief of tiny Sparta, Mississippi. After Tibbs proves not only his own innocence, but that of another man, he joins forces with Gillespie to track down the real killer. Their investigation takes them through every social level of the town, with Tibbs making enemies as well as unlikely friends as he hunts for the truth. The first hour of the film, I mean, it is literally crackling with racial tension. Uh, it is excellent, and it still holds up today. Think about this. The Voting Rights Act in America came out in 1964. In the Heat of the Night was released in 1967, and the film is taking place in Mississippi. Now, I don't need to be a black man, 
living in 1967 to know, hey, just because the Voting Rights Act came through in 64, not everybody was going to be supportive of people of different races and of different colors. And the movie nails the fact that at that time, it was still incredibly racist and uh, incredibly distrustful of outsiders. And especially Poitiers' character, who is so polished and so smart and ingenious, improves that very quickly as he points at a couple of flaws with Rod Steiger and the police department and what they're trying to do and trying to ascertain who the killer is. I, I was impressed by the way they were able to nail that. And of course, I give credit to Norman Jewison, the great Canadian director who's made a lot of films about racial injustice. The Hurricane with Denzel Washington, another one that comes to mind. Uh, but he certainly taps into that. And you've got, I mean, just stellar performances. Poitier, the scene that you all know, comes in about 20 minutes early into the movie. Steiger literally has dropped a couple of N-bombs already on him. And after Poitier has told him, listen, my name is Virgil Tibbs. I'm a police detective. He goes, Virgil, that's a funny name for an N-word like you. What do they call you in Philadelphia? And that's where he says, they call me Mr. Tibbs, which is a tremendous line. That's the most famous part of the movie. The other part, though, also incredible, he goes to question someone because now Poitier, he's just passing through town, visiting his mom. They arrest him. He obviously didn't do it, but he's actually a cop, and they realize he's actually smart. Hey, can you hang around and help us solve the case? They call his boss in Philly. He says, all right, help them. So when Poitier goes to investigate somebody, and he and Steiger have an uneasy alliance. It's not like they like each other. is doing the right thing here because he knows if he doesn't help solve the case, A, he gets in trouble with his boss, but B there's a woman who wants the case solved, and if the case doesn't get solved to her satisfaction, she's going to move a plant out of the city. And the plant is going to be responsible for a 1,000 jobs, 500 of which are black people. And the woman specifically says, no, I want the, I believe she says in the film, I want the Negro on the case, because she goes, clearly he's the one that's smart and knows what's happening. So you have the reluctant cop. He goes to interrogate a guy, and at one point, he asks him a question, and the guy slaps Poitier. Poitier slaps him right back. I'm like, oh, my God. This is 1967, deep south Mississippi. And the guy, of course, takes umbrage and looks at Rod Steiger's character. Like, Did you see that? Like, you're going to report that? And Steiger, again, doesn't really like Poitier, but he kind of just shrugs. He's like, well, I don't know. Like, we'll figure it out. And the way the white man, just as you know, virulent racist, looks down on Poitier and says, you know, like, boy, I could have you locked up for hitting a man like me. Well, you know what? The times are a-changing. There's also a scene where a bunch of racist young guys are literally chased down Sidney Poitier. He's like in an abandoned warehouse, and like he's fearing for his life. Like this is a potential lynching about to happen, and Steiger shows up and saves him. Um, and that's a really well-done sequence. In the Heat of the Night has a lot of great things going for it, but I'm not going to give it for me, police, for the simple fact the ending I thought was a bit of a letdown. It just feels a little too convenient the way it comes together, and of course, you've got to have a scene of reconciliation, which is terribly forced. Poitier goes back on the train to go back to Philly. Steiger says, hey, Virgil. He says, yeah. He smiles at him. Take care of yourself. Close up of Poitier. Smile. Take care of yourself. And the train goes away. And you go, well, no one's really buying the fact that these guys now respect each other. But fine. Last 10, 15 minutes to me let up a little bit. But still a film which was very powerful for its time and still holds up. I'm going to give it three and a half Maple Leafs. And Steiger, by the way, listen, Poitier, for good reason, is known for In the Heat of the Night. But Rod Steiger, you got one great actor, you have another great actor who's going to match wits with him. And you know what a good actor he is. Obviously on the waterfront, we all know the scene in the back of the car, him and Brando together. Playing the role of Gillespie, a terrible racist who realizes the brilliance of Poitier, 
Steiger also is excellent. John Mahoney's review of Hollywood Reporter, Poitier's excellent performance both transcends and lifts the pretensions of the film, eschewing earlier mannerisms and projecting a wealth of emotion and facial communication. Wanda Hale of New York Daily News, it's a pleasure all too rare to watch two splendid actors pitted against each other with equal force such as Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger in the exceptional murder mystery in the heat of the night. By the way, the, the title comes from the Ray Charles song, which they play quite a bit in the film as well. Did not know that. All right. Last one for you. Dial M for murder. After talking about North by Northwest, and my old buddy Zach liked that, Mark Simon liked that. Sorry, a little more Hitchcock for you. Checked it out on TCM. Ex-tennis pro Tony Wendis, Ray Milan, wants to have his wealthy wife Margot Grace Kelly murdered so he can get his hands on her inheritance. When he discovers her affair with Mark Halliday, he comes up with the perfect plan to kill her. He blackmails an old acquaintance into carrying out the murder, but the carefully orchestrated setup goes awry, and Margot stays alive. Now Wendus must frantically scheme to outwit the police and avoid having his plot detected. One thought here on Ray Milan, who I love, in The Lost Weekend. If you've never seen The Lost Weekend, incredible film. It was just Al Pacino's 80th birthday, my favorite actor. And there's a great, great story Al has told about as a kid he loved watching The Lost Weekend, which is, of course, uh, adult-themed material. It's about an alcoholic who's trying to give up booze, and that's what's called The Lost Weekend, alcoholic writer. And Pacino has told the story, you know, he watched it as a kid, and then with his grandparents and his mom who was raising him, they'd say, do this. They used to call him Sonny as a kid. So they'd say, Sonny, Sonny, do this scene from The Lost Weekend. And he would do this scene where Ray Milan is, like, having this terrible stretch where he's just dying for a drink, and he's frantically searching over his apartment for the missing alcohol. And Pacino would do it, and his grandparents, his mom, would burst out laughing. And he was so confused as like a six-year-old. He's like, I don't understand why they're laughing. Like, this is a very serious scene here. This guy's trying to find his alcohol. And, of course, he didn't realize the humor of the fact there's this, you know, six- or eight-year-old kid mimicking an alcoholic. But that's a thought on Ray Milan. If you've never seen him, watch The Lost Weekend. Dial in for murder, though. I'll be honest. It's a disappointment to me. It's a lot of show, don't tell. A lot of it takes place in one location, which is their apartment, where Ray Milan is talking to his old acquaintance about why he wants to murder his wife. It's all in that one setup. And Hitchcock doesn't really direct it with the usual style and verve that his films have. That scene in particular is very good in the way he lures his old friend in. But especially as the movie goes on and on, and after, of course, the murder falls apart, particularly the last 40 minutes. God, I was dying for a cutaway or a setup somewhere else. I mean, it just felt very stagey to me. And certainly Hitchcock's one of the all-time greatest directors. But like I said, it does not have his visual flourishes in this, where North by Northwest has some uh, wonderful set pieces like the crop dusting and the Mount Rushmore and obviously Vertigo, the whole sequence where Jimmy Stewart is uh, tailing the character um, in Vertigo, Psycho. I mean, obviously the sour sequence, so much more. Dial in for Murder just felt like a play adaptation and it, it did not feel the strength of Hitchcock's work. As good as those two actors are, Ray Milan and also, of course, Grace Kelly. Charlotte O'Sullivan... Ray Milan is great as Coldfish Tony Wendis, a former tennis pro who plans to bump off his adulterous wife. Still, Grace Kelly is miscast or misdirected as the spouse in question. Derwent May also sing Ray Milan is sufficiently suave as the misbegotten genius. And Hitchcock has moved about very sure-footedly on what continues to be, for the most part, just a stage. Exactly. That's my issue with it. It's too much of a stage play. It wasn't a strong enough film for me. Dial M for Murder Joe, which I know you've seen. I'm only going to give it two Maple Leafs. It's disappointing for me within Hitchcock's oeuvre. I love this movie, Adnan, so much, and I and I'm I don't know what to say. I, I really really enjoy this movie. If I can just give a little bit of context, yes, it was based on a play by a guy named Frederick Knott that came out in 1952, 
and uh, Alfred Hitchcock actually originally signed on to do a different movie, but was wrestling with the script. And so when um, the studio got Dial M for Murder, Hitchcock was quoted as saying that he was coasting slash playing it safe with this movie. And also, just to provide some context, this was Hitchcock's only 3D film um, that he ever made because in the early 50s, there was the whole 3D fad. The studio came to him and said, hey, you're an established thriller director already. Let's marry these two. And by the time the film was released, the 3D fad had kind of died out. So they did most of their screenings in 2D. And I think as a result, this movie doesn't look like other Hitchcock movies because he had to use these giant 3D cameras from the 1950s uh, and maneuver it around this small set. But I really like the movie. All right. We disagree and dial in for murder. So obviously everybody out there, check it out. It was on Turner Classic Movies. I'm sure you can find it somewhere. Joe loved it. I didn't care for it. Uh, Coming up next, we've got some entertainment news and also our special guest, Eric Roberts. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. All right, some entertainment news. This is a funny one. Pierce Brosnan is saying Quentin Tarantino once drunkenly pitched him a Bond movie. That's right. He told this story recently to Esquire, and Brosnan said they ended up meeting, uh, went up to Hollywood one day from the beach, met him at the Four Seasons, got there at 7. I like to be punctual. 7.15 came around. No Quentin. He was upstairs to impress. Someone sent over a martini, so I had a martini. I waited until 7.30. I thought, where the heck is he? Word comes down. He apologizes, so I thought, okay, I'll have another martini. Brosnan said he was fairly smokered by the time Tarantino arrived. Tarantino caught up with Brosnan, so both of them were fairly smokered. He said that Tarantino was pounding the table saying, you're the best James Bond. I want to do James Bond. It's very close quarters in the restaurant. I thought, please calm down, but we don't tell Quentin Tarantino to calm down. So what did Tarantino pitch? Brosnan wouldn't reveal, but he did say he went back to the shop and told them, but it wasn't meant to be. That would be a good one to watch. Just imagine, Joe, Quentin Tarantino doing a James Bond movie. How fun would that have been? That would have been amazing. A Tarantino. We've been talking about Tarantino doing Star Trek, but Tarantino doing a Bond film, that would be great. I think there's a lot of great Bond films, but I think there's a lot of really, really bad Bond films too. So I would love to have seen his take on it. What do you think? Uh, totally, man. I, I could just imagine Tarantino. I mean, the dialogue is always the strength of his film. Imagine the sequences he had with Bond and villains and women and God, even even the action sequences. Like, you don't necessarily think of Tarantino as an action director, but Kill Bill, one and two, I mean, there's some great action sequences. So I, I think, God, if you gave him a $200 million budget and said, go wild, I mean, God, I'd love to see a Tarantino Bond movie. Um, one more bit of entertainment news, and we're going to get to Eric Roberts. Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd, their series, The Shrink Next Door, landing at Apple. So there's an Anchorman reunion on Apple TV+. Plus. It's a straight-to-series order. It's going to be a comedy limited series. Uh, first time seeing Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd on the screen. First time since Anchorman 2. It's inspired by true events documented in the Wondery and Bloomberg Media podcast of the same name, The Shrink Next Door. It's a dark comedy following the bizarre relationship between psychiatrist to the stars, Dr. Isaac Ike Hirschkopf, that's played by Rudd, and his longtime patient, Martin Marty Markowitz. Over the course of their relationship, Ike slowly takes over Marty's life, even moving into Marty's home and taking over his family business. Eight-episode series, 
um, is hailing from Civics Intermedia. The Big Stick director, Michael Showalter, on board as a director with Succession and Veep scribe Georgia Pritchett. Set to pen and show run the dark comedy. Looking forward to that, right? Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd together. Who's going to say no to that, Joe? Oh, 100%. And Michael Showalter being in it, uh, or directing it too. And you know me, I've, I've been plugging Succession to you forever. Uh, the fact that they got that scribe of Georgia Prichett, definitely, definitely will see. My buddy Charlie Frankel actually texted me this week saying I got to watch Succession. You know what? Maybe I'll at least watch one episode because you're right. I I hear the show is phenomenal. I don't hear anything bad about that. So you're right. Succession. I'm in on. I'm in on Rudd and Farrell. And I'm in on Eric Roberts, our special guest right now. A real pleasure to welcome in our special guest and cinephile, Eric Roberts, an Academy Award nominee for his role in Runaway Train, a three-time Golden Globe nominee for Runaway Train, Star 80, and King of the Gypsies, a film which I just watched. is called Inside the Rain. It's available on Amazon Prime. He's very funny in the movie, playing Monty Pennington. Eric, thank you so much for the time today. Of course. What fun this is. Good morning. Listen, First and foremost, I'm wondering how you're doing. And before I want to just say, you know, how you keeping busy, obviously, this terrible time where we're trying to, you know, deal with cabin fever and all these other projects. I looked at this list, Eric. This is insane to me. You have 25 productions suspended indefinitely, according to your publicist. If you go on IMDb.com, this is crazy how much work you had in the pipeline, which has now been suspended. How are you dealing with that? I feel terrible for you. I am one of the luckiest actors I've ever met. They allow me to work all the time. So this has just changed my whole life. And, uh, I, and I'm, I'm also a gym rat. I'm in the gym every day, no matter where I am, for an hour at least. And so that's gone too. So it's changed my whole life. But here's the thing. We're all in this bowl of discomfort together so we have to all smile and be each other's friends <laughs> you're absolutely you know? right misery loves company right now we can all be miserable together and i agree with you it's going to be great when we get out of this and we get to the gym and we can get back working again you've had a remarkable career as i touched on i've been acting in so many movies for so many years i want to start with my favorite movie you've been in that's the dark knight it's one of the great films of this century eric it was so influential it literally changed the academy award laws because it had that not get nominated for best picture okay now the movies can be between five and ten and include you know smart blockbusters like the dark knight tell me about that experience working with christopher nolan and the reception that that film had well, Chris Nolan is all the things that you want a movie maker to be. He has all the answers. He knows what he wants, uh, and uh, he knows why he wants it. And uh, he has he has he has real kind humor, and uh, and he's got these two wonderful kids who are who are who are, who are always on the set. And his wife was his boss, so it was a family affair, and it was it was just a wonderful set that was all the things you want it to be. But the greatest thing about that set was where we shot it. We shot it at the old Zeppelin hangar. Well, we shot all the Chicago stuff in Chicago. But all, all the Gotham City stuff was all shot at the old Zeppelin hangar, which is 30 miles north of London. And if you're a movie geek, which I am, you walk into the place and it's all Gotham City. It blows your mind. It's so cool. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, you watch that movie, you can appreciate the set pieces. And like you said, if you're a movie geek, just appreciating, you know, the set productions and the costume design and production design. It's just, I mean, what was that like? Like you said, walking on the set and seeing so much working on, on a different level. Well, you can really lose yourself on that, on that kind of set. And you remember why you became an actor. 
when you're eight years old, having having a fake fight scene in the mirror with a Hershey's chocolate syrup and dripping out of your mouth like blood, and you decided, I'm going to do this my whole life, you know. And then you walk into that, into, into the Zeppelin hangar, and it's all Gotham City, and you go, oh, yeah, this is why I'm an actor, to pretend. And it's just so much fun, and it's such a child's paradise. And, of course, we're all children, or we wouldn't be in show business. <laughs> well said. Another film that I love you're in, Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice. It's a really funny movie. It's adapted from a book that people said you could not adapt. I think P.T. Anderson's about as gifted as it gets. Tell me about working on a set with him and what's he like? Well, he's the most... Paul Thomas Anderson is the most specific director I've had since Bob Fosse. And uh, that, I believe, was 30 years ago. And uh, he, he knows what he wants, why he wants it. And he's very specific. And he wants, he wants the camera on, on your fingernail. It's for a reason. And uh, so you play the whole scene around your fingernail. I'm just making that up. But, but he's very specific. And uh, he's also very kind. He's one of the sweetest guys I've ever been around. As Rabat Fossey was kind of rough, um, Paul Thomas Anderson, a lovely, sweet, endearing, huggable man. That brings us exactly where I want to go, which is Inside the Rain. Everybody should watch it on Amazon Prime. Here's the story. Facing expulsion from college over a misunderstanding, a bipolar student and a moonlighting porn actress hatch a scheme to prove his innocence. You're dealing with some serious subject matter here with somebody who's bipolar, but it's dealt with a real deft touch and comic tones. It's funny. And your character, particularly Monty Pennington, playing a movie producer, the scene which I laughed at the most is when you're first talking to the kid and you say to him, Spike Lee. P.T. Anderson, Paul Thomas as I know him, uh, Martin Scorsese, Marty as I call him, Bob Fosse. Those are the four directors that you mentioned. I said to myself, he's worked with these guys. How, how great was that? Was that an ad lib or was that the script? I was, I was improving. I was having fun. <laughs> I mean, that whole story, though, I mean, playing a movie producer, I, I just laugh because Hollywood loves the movie producers. I mean, you think about Burt Reynolds uh, in Boogie Nights or a Dustin Hoffman in Wag the Dog. How much fun did you have playing this character in this movie? Well, I've had hundreds of, uh, of bosses that we call that we that we call you know producers, and I took about a dozen of them, and I put them all into one guy, and um, that that dozen of them was slightly cliche, but they all have a slight sense of humor about themselves. So 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 you don't hate them for uh, for uh, for uh, for steering you astray. You know, they all have a slight sense of humor, and they and they and they all have some kind of understandable experience of failure that was that was not their fault you know what i mean and uh and they're and they're almost likable these guys but you can't trust them <laughs> well the one scene is really funny with your character you've been kicked out i want to ruin it for people you should watch it. it's called inside the rain but where your character's been kicked out of the house by his wife now he's living in a garage and he's trying to open up the garage like oh just give me a second here he's trying to put on this pretense he's this movie producer but he's with hawaiian shirts meantime he's living in a garage you can't even open the garage door don't make fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Uh, like I said off the top, Academy Award nominee for Runaway Train, also Golden Globe nominated, Star 80, and King of the Gypsies. I mean, a guy to recognize in your Saints, It's My Party, TV, forget about it, Suits, CSI, Stars, Grey's Anatomy, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Will and Grace. With a career like you've had, Eric, what's the role people recognize you the most for? Oh, it's, it's about a five-way tie. But I think maybe, probably, Charlie, they took my thumb, the Pope of Greenwich Village. 
I was about to say, Mickey Rourke, I mean, the 80s, that time period, did you have any sense that movie would be as influential as it was? Because like you said, anybody who was of that age watched that movie and loved it. Well, that book was so monumental to all of us who, uh, who read that book. We all knew it was classic. And, uh, and the fact that uh, it was made into such a good movie, uh, just, you know, it's a, it, it's a real memory of a time and a place in American history, New York history, film history, history. It's a cool movie. Oh, yeah. Can you give me a story about work with Mickey on set? Mickey Rourke, uh, let, let me see, what can I tell you? Uh, our first night together, we did the scene where we lose our jobs and we're out on the street outside the restaurant. And he throws a cigarette butt at me on my shirt. Well, we, he, he, he had to match in all the shots. He threw a whole pack of cigarettes down my shirt. I came away with about 20 cigarette burns on my shirt the next day from that scene. That's something I've never told before. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Like you said, it's child's play, but it could be a little difficult at times as well. So, so when you watch that scene again, you know that I went away all burned up. <laughs> Got to suffer for your art, right? On another note, it's estimated that 52% of men over the age of 40 in the U.S. suffer from erectile dysfunction of some kind or some 30 to 35 million. And think about this. Most men do not seek treatment for a variety of reasons, and those who do are often prescribed pills like Viagra and Cialis, but most experts view these oral medications as mere Band-Aids. Tell us about the rocket, Eric. This is a revolutionary new device from Launch Medical that's using sound wave therapy to permanently release symptoms of ED. This is big. It's so far out you bring this up. A friend of mine is an inventor, and he comes to me and he goes, I have an invention. It's, it's the, uh, the, uh, the cure for ED. I said, well, I don't have ED. He said, Eric, everybody's going to get ED. Let me tell you why. He says, you know, you know how you have heart issues when you get old? It's because you have plaque in your bloodstream. Well, it affects your, your appendage the same way it affects your heart. It gets in the way of blood flow. So he has this device called the rocket. He calls it the rocket. And uh, it, it uses sound waves, pop, 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 pop. And it breaks up the plaque in your blood vessels, in your appendage, so you have better blood flow. And quite frankly... It's what every man who, even if you don't have ED yet, you should use it for maintenance. And it's also fun with the old lady. Trust me. <laughs> well, listen, this kind of therapy can cost between $3,000 and $10,000 in professional clinic. But this enhancement of sexual performance, look how affordable this is. A retail price of $749, you can't beat that. Yeah, one of the cool things about this is this, this – uh, Technique has been available for uh, for decades, but you had to go to the clinic. You had to you had to say hi. I'm here to have my have my thing done, and uh, and it was expensive. It was time consuming. You had to take a trip, and you had to talk about your penis with other people. Now, I like the whole idea that I can be at home with my wife or not, but I can be at home and on my own schedule and uh, have my own device and uh, and and do it my own way. I like the whole idea. I love it. The Rocket. Check it out, people, because like I said, those stats do not lie. As we're closing up shop, Eric, like I said, it's been an amazing career you've had. What's the best piece of advice someone's given you about being an actor and navigating Hollywood all these years? Uh, the best piece of advice I can give a new young actor is this. Treat everybody you meet in this industry like they're going to be your boss next week, because they might be. 
I was about to say, everything comes full circle. One more thought for you. Al Pacino's 80th birthday was this past Saturday. And I was going through some stories. I mean, listen, we all love Al Pacino. And he said about the fact for Pretty Woman, he actually was cast by Gary Marshall. And even though he turned down the role, he did tell Gary Marshall, where'd you find this girl? Julia Roberts, she's unbelievable. And of course, Julia Roberts is your sister. I just want you to think for a second, what would Pretty Woman have been like if Al Pacino was in that movie rather than Richard Gere? Wow, what a question. You know, you know who to ask that of is my sister. Uh, but uh, I think it would have been more like, what's the movie where he played the blind guy? Yeah, Scent of a Woman. Yeah, it would have been more like Scent of a Woman. It, 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 it would have been an older guy that you weren't really afraid they were going to fall in love. They just, you know, had this, had this you know, connection. As with, with, with Gear and her, it was love in the making, love in the making. Is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? And, and, and it made you happy to know them both. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's always interesting to think about hypotheticals with movies and such. Eric Roberts, it's been a remarkable career. Once again, check out The Rocket for ED and check out his film Inside the Rain on Amazon Prime. I can't thank you enough for the time. Like you said, you're a gym rat. Hopefully the gyms open up soon. We can get back to work. And thank you once again for your time, sir. It's a pleasure. But the way to get The Rocket is at GetMyRocket.com. Mount Rushmore. All right, Mount Rushmore movie titles. I told the story last week on the podcast about Paper Moon, and how Orson Welles told Peter Bogdanovich, I don't care what the movie's about, that's a great title. You're going to have a hit movie just with that title alone. So the best films of movie titles. This is going to be impossible to do, and I didn't even do my list yet. So we're going to have to have Joe go first, who obviously is, does take this seriously and already did his list. So Joe, what is going to be your list? This is going to be, God, this is going to be awfully tough. <laughs> Mount Rushmore of movie titles. What do you got? You're right. It is um really really hard and I was uh, I was putting this list together the amount of movies that have been made. It, it's an impossible task to do. So, I'm going to try my best and I'll start with the Bruce Lee film Enter the Dragon. Love that title, love that movie. Um, I noticed that the titles that I was veering towards for this list are titles that kind of explain a little bit something about the movie before you go into it. So my second pick is the iconic 1955 movie, Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean. I also have All the President's Men on my list for best titles ever. But I think the number one title in movie history has to be Back to the Future. It says it all right there in the title, what you're going to expect, what the movie is about, and it's clever. So those are my four, Enter the Dragon, all the President's Men, Rebel Without a Cause, and Back to the Future. Fabulous. I was going to say, the one that I knew right away is Back to the Future. I could not agree with you more. That is an incredible title. That was the one when I looked at the list. I said, okay, I'm going to need a minute here. But Back to the Future is an absolute no-brainer for me, so we agree on that. i got to get another comedy in there because it's a great title. Blazing Saddles. <laughs> I mean, that is literally a reference to the fact there's a lot of farting in the movie, and the campfire scene where they all eat a ton of beans is like two straight minutes of flatulence. Like, what a great title. It's, it's a Western, and we're going to have a lot of fart jokes. So Blazing Saddles, to me, is a tremendous title. I also love, and Paul Thomas Anderson has said he's so proud of this title, and he goes, 
I just knew it was going to be a good way because of the title. There Will Be Blood. I mean, that is just a hell of a title. It doesn't tell you what the hell it's about. That's an oil baron going toe-to-toe with a preacher, but There Will Be Blood. I mean, that's, that's a phenomenal title. And that means I've got a few here left. I, I can't decide between one of these. I mean, I think Gone with the Wind has a certain little of a poeticness to it. I love Last Tango in Paris because it, it implies there's something ending. There's a finality to it. And a tango, in this case, means a tortured sexual relationship with Marlon Brando and a young French woman. But I also love Requiem for a Dream. I think that's a really good title, especially since it's such a sad movie about drug abuse and people falling apart. So it makes you feel a little bit hopeful that it was a Requiem for a Dream. So that's my list. Back to the Future, Blazing Saddles, There Will Be Blood, Requiem for a Dream. Please do tweet us, though. Cinephile Potter, Adnan Esferk, and let us know what's your favorite title. There's a lot of... Listen, The Usual Suspects, I think, is a great title. The Seven Samurai is a great title. There's a lot of good ones. But, Joe, I'm with you on yours. Also, let me just back you up a Rebel Without a Cause. I mean, that's, that's a phenomenal title. Oh, yeah. And if I could just give one honorable mention, too, I would give it to... Big Trouble in Little China or Apocalypse Now or even Cool Hand Luke. There's just so many cool, cool titles that someone came up with. The French Connection, Dog Day Afternoon. There's so many of them. Yeah. It's an impossible. I will also back up on Apocalypse Now. I was thinking about that. So honorable mention for me as well. All right. Good Mount Rushmore topic from Joe. Now we get to Total Recall. All right, now it's time for Total Recall 2010. These are films from 2009. Best picture was The Hurt Locker. What else was nominated? Avatar, District 9, An Education, Inglorious Bastards, Precious, based on the novel Push by Sapphire, A Serious Man, Up, Up in the Air. Yeah, this is where things started to get bloated. I feel like this is where they started to get a lot of these movies in there, and I'm thinking, how the hell is The Blind Side one of the best pictures of the year? Um, God, it's a dark-ass movie, but I'll go with Precious. I mean, it was hard-hitting for sure. I, I've seen it once, and I have no desire to ever watch it again, but if the point of cinema is to be impactful and to change the way you look at things, I mean, this was about as heavy-hitting as it gets. I will go with Precious. Based on the novel Push by Sapphire and a collection of people, um, a Serious Man is not my favorite Coen Brothers movie. Listen, vote for Up. I feel like Joe might go with Up. That's a great animated movie. That's probably my Mount Rushmore of animated movies. So I'd have no issue with that. Up in the Air, really good movie. Inglorious Bastards, excellent Tarantino. The Hurt Locker, I'm not about crazy about his others. District 9 actually is a pretty cool sci-fi film. So definitely some worthy choices, but my vote would have been Precious or Up. Joe? You know what? I am going to go with Up. Originally, I was going to veer towards District 9, but I'm going to go with Up only because I think it's the best Pixar movie ever made. Um, And for that reason, I feel like it should have gotten Best Picture this year. But there's so many great choices to choose from, but I'll go with Up. All right. Best Director was Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker. Nice to see a female director, not only nominated, but actually winning. Who else was nominated? James Cameron for Avatar. Quentin Tarantino for Inglorious Bastards. Lee Daniels, Precious, based on the novel by Push by Sapphire, and Jason Reitman for Up in the Air. I do love Jason Reitman because, of course, Ivan Reitman, great Canadian. And uh, like I said, Up in the Air is a funny movie. It's a smart movie. It's got Clooney at his best. Uh, you don't see the, the hook coming, real punch in the face all of a sudden when you find a Vera Farmiga's actually married. Uh, Anna Kendrick, just like Claire Atkins. 
Um, but I'm going to go with Lee Daniels again. I'm going to go with Precious for Best Picture and Best Director because you're going to have a director who's going to be unflinching material, and yet there's moments where he's got these flights of fancy that, like, you know, Precious starts imagining what her life is like, and it's like a needed escape from the world of which she's living in, which is just a world of squalor. So I actually thought it was really well-directed. Um, it was nice to see Bigelow win. Obviously, it's rare. Obviously, a female director not even nominated to get winning. Tarantino, the first scene of Inglorious Bastards might be the best scene he's ever directed. When Christoph Waltz first comes in and the way he's got basically just two shots, medium shots back and forth, but then the camera slowly goes down and you see the people hiding in the basement. I mean, that's a tremendous reveal. And Tarantino's obviously never won Best Director. Uh, but I would have gone with Lee Daniels. Joe? I like that pick. I'm going to agree with the Academy and go with Catherine Bigelow. Just some of the sequences that she was able to put together in the Hurt Locker, I really liked. Plus, she beat out her ex-husband, James Cameron, for uh, Best Picture and Best Director that year. So yeah. more, more power to her. Uh, Avatar, I liked it. Again, kind of like Titanic. I, I liked it. I saw it once, never seen it again. Still waiting like everybody else for these sequels. But you're right. It was kind of funny to have that subplot of Bigelow beating her ex. Best Actor was Jeff Bridges for Crazy Heart. What else was nominated? George Clooney for Up in the Air, Colin Firth, A Single Man, Morgan Freeman for Invictus, and Jeremy Renner, The Hurt Locker. I'll agree with the Academy. I thought Bridges was long overdue, obviously, to win an Academy Award. It's not his best performance, but it is a very comfortable performance in that it's very lived in. You don't for a second deny the authenticity of it. He comes across as a musician who you'd like to have a drink with, although, of course, in this case, he has too many drinks. That's why he's an alcoholic. It's not the most original story. I know the joke was I liked it better when it was called Tender Mercies. Robert Duvall won an Academy Award playing a country musician, also an alcoholic, back in 1983. But Bridges obviously should have won something for the Big Lebowski, so I will take the Career Achievement Award, but I also do really like the movie on its own merit. Let me make that clear. Crazy Heart is a really good movie. The scene where the, the kid gets lost because he's having a drink and Maggie Gyllenhaal's disgust with him. I like the fact it does not go for the happy ending. It is more a realistic ending. Clooney, fabulous and up in the air. That would have been my second choice, but I like what the Academy did. I'm going with Bridges. I like that. I will go with Clooney for up in the air. To your point earlier, he's great in it. Um, charming, funny. Uh, I won't go with Jeremy Renner. I thought he was good in The Hurt Locker, but he's been releasing way too many musical EPs at Nan. I don't need to hear from his band. <laughs> I don't want to know that he can kind of sing. I don't need. I just don't need it. I don't need it. So I won't give it to him as a result. I, I like that John Oliver made fun of that recently, as we talked about last week tonight. Best actress, just brutal. Sandra Bullock for The Blind Side. She obviously shouldn't have won. Who else was nominated? Helen Mirren, The Last Station, Carrie Mulligan, and Education, Gabourette Sidibe for Precious, based on the novel Push by Sapphire, and Meryl Streep for Julie and Julia. Meryl Streep was a hilarious Julia Child. I mean, she nailed the laugh and the look of it. Uh, her romance and relationship with Stanley Tucci was surprisingly tender. I'm glad she got nominated. I know she gets nominated all the time, but seriously, Julia and Julia is a really, really good movie. I would have gone with Gabri Sidibe. More love for Precious. I would have given it Best Picture, Best Director. Kid actors are rarely recognized, as we talked about last time on Rushmore. You know, there's always so many Tatum O'Neills that win or Anna Paquin for the piano. This is a great team performance by Gabri Sidibe. I would have liked that to win. Sandra Bullock and the Blind said, give me a break. All right. Leanne Tui's got her heart in the right place. If you want to nominate it, fine. But the movie's not great. I didn't think the performance was that special either. I agree with you. I'm going to go with uh, Gabrielle Sidby as well. Um, and for, for the same reasons I brought up in the past, like Adnan, can you imagine a different actress now having seen it? Their time has passed playing that role. 
Oh, no way. No way. Like, that's, I mean, that's a hard role. You're playing an obese young teenager whose mom's a drug addict. I mean, like, come on. How many actors can nail that? She was tremendous. Best Supporting Actor was Christoph Waltz for Inglorious Bastards. What else was nominated? Matt Damon for Invictus, Woody Harrelson, The Messenger, Christopher Plummer, The Last Station, and Stanley Tucci, The Lovely Bones. Wow, this is a tough one for me. <laughs> I, my, my, my first inclination is Walt as Colonel Hans Landa. I'm like, listen, he's wonderful in the movie, and it's, I have no issue with him winning. But I got to tell you, two of those are tremendous. Woody Harrelson in The Messenger. I mean, I'd love to see Woody Harrelson win an Oscar one day. You talk about a great actor who's been dialing it up for years, and he can do comedy and drama, and The Messenger playing uh, corporate Tony Stone. God, he's got a couple of scenes there where you can tell the toll of war. In case you haven't seen the film, check out The Messenger. It is about what has to happen. There are soldiers whose job is to go to the homes of the slain and tell them what has happened. And that scene where he literally tells Ben Foster, here's how we do it. You go to the home, you knock on the door. Are, are you Mr. Stevens? I regret to inform you, your son, John Stevens, was murdered today in an assault and blah, 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 blah. Dispassionate, calm, don't hug them, don't touch them. Don't use another word like passed away, say died. Like that whole scene where he's telling him what to do and then he actually delivers the information, it's as powerful as it gets. And even later on when the Harrelson, like the, the, the colossal weight of what he's dealing with affects him, he finally breaks down. I mean, that's, it's a tremendous performance in an excellent movie. And I love Stanley Tucci. I mean, I've already told you before, Big Night's one of my all-time favorites. The Lovely Bones, his only Oscar nomination for acting, I remember Ty Burr, who I love at the Boston Globe, called it a good actor giving a bad performance, which I couldn't disagree with Ty Moore on. I think he's a a great actor who gave a great performance playing a villain. Ty's point was that he thought there was too many ticks and mannerisms. He's got the bad mustache, the glasses, and he's playing this child killer. Hey, you're that salmon girl, aren't you? But I actually thought he was excellent. I thought Lovely Bones was a pretty mediocre movie. Expected a lot more because the book is so loved and obviously Peter Jackson's imprint on it, but Tucci was tremendous. But honestly, it's tough to beat Inglorious Bastards and Christoph Waltz. That whole first sequence, again, the way he dives into the dialogue, it's the first time we'd ever really seen him in a movie like this. He's so memorable, he's so funny, and yet so sinister and such a great villain. I will agree with the Academy, Joe, but I got to tell you, I really love Woody Harrelson and Stanley Tucci. I have never seen The Messenger, and I'm going to watch that this weekend and let you know what I thought. It sounds really, really great. I have to. I will, I definitely will. But I, I have to agree. With you and the Academy, it has to be Christoph Waltz. I, I mean, Glorious Bastards is the Tarantino movie I've seen the most. And as someone who speaks one and three quarters of a la- of languages, um, the fact that he can just go into German, French, and English and nail all of it so seamlessly, I think is also incredibly impressive. So I'll go with him. Also likes his calcium. Has a glass of milk. Good for the bones. <laughs> uh, best supporting actress. No brainer. Monique, who apparently is just a tyrant. I mean, if you're wondering how does somebody win an Academy Award then just disappear, apparently she's just a giant pain the you-know-what, but she was incredible as the mother from hell. Monique won Best Supporting Actress. What else was nominated? Penelope Cruz for Nine, Vera Farmiga for Up in the Air, Maggie Gyllenhaal for Crazy Hearts, and Anna Kendrick for Up in the Air. As you all have noticed, oftentimes when a category comes out, I'll say, well, that one's a joke. All those nominations were great. 
I mean, up in the air, Kendrick, like I said, perky and charming, Farmiga, uh, elderly woman, relatively speaking, considering what Clooney's normally into, his character, and that hook that she gives him, I mean, that is powerful. Hall, again, the love interest in Crazy Heart, you believe the fact she loves Daniel's character, but you also believe the fact that she loves her son more than anything. And Nine is a horrible musical, but Penelope Cruz is the best part of the movie, as always alluring and attractive and charming. But Monique was the winner for me, but I like all those nominees, Joe. Yeah, me too. I have to, yeah, have to go with Monique on this. Um, though I did really, really like Beer Formiga in Up in the Air, but definitely Monique. It's just an overpowering performance. Yeah, overpowering is a good word for it. Best original screenplay was The Hurt Locker, Mark Bowl. What else was nominated? Inglorious Bastards, Quentin Tarantino, The Messenger, A Serious Man, and Up. I'd love to give it to Up here. God, but I, I mean, I should have... Best Picture, I went with Precious, but I kind of wanted to give it to Up, so now I feel like I should make a makeup now and give it to Up. So you know what? Screenplay by Bob Peterson and Pete Docter. I will give this one, but God, it's very hard for me not to give it to The Messenger. Alessandro Camone and Oren Muberman, that is a special movie that Joe's going to watch this weekend. A Serious Man to Me is not one of the Coen Brothers' better movies. Um, Tarantino, great film. Glad he was nominated. Hurt Locker, as you've noticed by now, the fact I haven't given it anything. I liked it, but I didn't love it. I would have given this one to Up, but God, I really loved it. I would have seen The Messenger as well. Welcome to my side, Adnan. Yeah, all right. I'm going with Up too. Um, you know, the first whole sequence, nine minutes without any dialogue, and you go through every range of emotion. How does Pixar do that? Um, but I also, I, I will back up. I actually do like A Serious Man um, based on the book of Job in the Bible that Co- uh, the Coen brothers wrote. So I will plug that, but definitely Up. It has to be Up. Yeah, our, our friend uh, Jason Horowitz, recent guest on Cinephile, he loves A Serious Man. He loves The Coen Brothers. My cousin Zyde loves it. There's, there's definitely fans of that movie. I, I wasn't one of them. I thought it was all right, but but I do appreciate, like you said, it was based on Joe, and there's some, some funny sequences, but it didn't, uh, it didn't work for me as much as normally the Coen Brothers movies do. Best Adapted Screenplay, I couldn't agree more. Precious, based on the novel, pushed by Sapphire, Jeffrey Fletcher, based on the book. He won. It was the right move. Who else was nominated? District 9. An education in the loop and up in the air. Yeah, an education. Carrie Mulligan, get out of here. Up in the air, definitely funny and smart and touching. But I'll go District 9. You're going to appreciate this one, Joe. Sci-fi movies rarely get recognized by the Academy. I thought that was a smart movie. It was engaging. Neil Bloomkamp did it. If it wasn't precious, and I'm glad it was, I would have voted for District 9. Well, if you're going precious, then I will go District Nine for the exact reasons that you talked about. I thought I thought I, I absolutely adored that movie when it came out, District Nine. But Precious is, I mean, there's a reason why it tore up the Oscars this year. And and if you ha- if people haven't seen it, definitely make a point to watch it. Yeah, I've never seen it again, but I've seen it once, and I've definitely never forgotten it. Thank you so much for checking out Cinephile. Please go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. I appreciate all of you so much for supporting us during this time. And all of you stay safe. We will get through this together. In terms of new material out there, Extraction is an action movie starring uh, Chris Hemsworth from the Russo Brothers produced it. I believe the director is uh, a guy who was a stunt coordinator on Avengers. So I'm not crazy about action movies. What the hell? We want new content, like Joe said. So I'll, I'll dial up Extraction on Netflix. And until then, we'll see you at the movies. mm
mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.